Hello, and welcome to Pod Catalyst. I'm Peter Finn, Executive Director at IBC, or the International Association of Business Communicators. And for this episode, I spoke with Stephanie Speck. Fascinating background, great interview. And just a little bit about Stephanie before we jump into the interview. Stephanie was nine when her parents moved the family to Papua New Guinea. After witnessing a tribal fight near her school at an early age, Stephanie learned a queer lesson. Violence is never the solution. War doesn't fix things. Since then, Stephanie has lived and worked in more than 20 countries, accumulating almost 25 years experience as a strategy and communications advisor, supporting democratic reform in fragile and conflict-affected settings. Stephanie's expertise includes the design and programming of cross-government reform strategies, strategic communication and advocacy initiatives, public policy development, resource mobilization, external relations, government public affairs, and crisis communications. Stephanie has launched TV channels, was the deputy director of the first Palestine Investment Forum, led a $1 billion governance reform portfolio in Afghanistan, developed maternal health campaigns in the Vietnamese-Chinese border regions, worked to eliminate family voting in Albania, reported on disasters. She earned the Australian Humanitarian Award for her post uh, work post uh, the Indian Ocean tsunami and has held several high-level public diplomacy and spokesperson roles. Stephanie has returned to live and work in Australia after three years of leading communication advocacy initiatives for the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction in Geneva. And right now she's currently the Chief Communications Officer for the Department of Education and Training in Victoria, Australia. It was a pleasure speaking with Stephanie and we had not met before and really, really interesting background. And I think you'll really enjoy the interview, just a, kind of a broad range of things that she's done in her past and the work that she's doing now that's, that's really, really interesting. So I think you'll uh, enjoy it. And here we go. Stephanie, thanks so much for uh, for speaking with me uh, today. And I, I know you have a fascinating background and I, I look forward to learning more about it. But one thing I always ask our guests is just, you know, how did you get started in communications? I know you are a global traveler and have worked in a number of different countries, but um, but how did your career start? Well, my earliest ambition was to be the world's greatest soprano diva. So I actually <laughs> <laughs> I actually started in opera. Uh, oh, wow. I, I, I studied arts and music at university and I thought I was either going to be the world's greatest spy or the world's greatest diva. And, uh, <laughs> and so I spent a long time working semi-professionally in opera in South Australia, where I'm from. And I think that's the ultimate form of communication. Plus, you get applauded for it, which is always nice if you're yeah. a communication type. Normally, you have a personality type that responds well to external adulation. <laughs> and <laughs> that was certainly my position. But um, where I really switched into communications was I was actually working for Australian aid organisation, AusAid as it was known there at then, and I was sent as a first responder after the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami. And I was doing both opera back home in Adelaide, uh, La Boheme, and being sent to Banda Aceh, Maldives and Sri Lanka. And there were two distorted realities, really. And I, at that point, made a very clear decision that development work, and particularly in the communications change space, was where I felt most alive. And that started me really on a on the last, you know, the, or the next 20 years, I should say, of working in some of the world's greatest places on some of the most perplexing issues. Yeah. And so w- what are some of the things that you know, you've learned along the way to be part of a, a culture or a new, a new place in the world and you know, how you sort of, you know, uh, come in as a, whether it be personally or professionally or, you know, just 
you know, what, what's been part of your success there? Yeah, I, it's a great question. I had the privilege to spend several years when I was younger growing up in Papua New Guinea. My parents oh, were wow. teachers and okay. there was an international primary school literally in the middle of the Southern Highlands province in Papua New Guinea. And, uh, and so I spent several years living there as a child. And I think that really seeded that desire, enjoyment of being somewhere completely strange with, with things I didn't know a lot about. And then I think working for AusAid and DFAT early on in my career just, just can uh, concreted that wanderlust, if I can call it that. And my experience is that I've never been both more afraid and more alive than, than when I'm, you know, coming into land in a country that I've never seen before, where I don't speak the language, where I don't know anyone, and I'm not quite sure when I'll be leaving again. And I think really what has been important in the process of, of assimilation is I'm deeply curious about people. And, and I always have been as a child. I was always a really desperate to know why people made the decisions they did and so I think that deep curiosity has been what's at the what's at the start of my desire to assimilate and I think professionally I'm really very deliberate about being very open and confessing my my naivety in situations I very deliberately ask questions all the time particularly of older women because they're they're never short in any culture of telling you what what, what's the right way to behave or think or do and I think I've also made a great practice in virtue of being a chameleon wherever I am in terms of the things that don't matter, like what I wear or what I eat or, or where I live, and then try to be very consistent in the things that do matter, how I treat people, how well I do my work, how I respond to adversity. And I think really underneath all of that, the curiosity, the chameleon ability, the deep-seated values is I have a huge appetite for saying yes to, yeah. to anything. And just out of curiosity, is there, you know, other than your native country, are there, are there places that have just, you know, you've just felt like, oh, this, this just feels great. You know, I, I just, you know, I, I think everyone kind of finds places in the world that they just gravitate towards and any places in particular. I think most of the places I've had the privilege of working and living, I have fallen in love with. And you don't stay there if you don't. You have to give yeah. a portion of your heart wherever you are, either to people or place. For me, the Middle East yeah. is where I feel most alive and strangely, perhaps most at home. I, Particularly uh, in Palestine, I had the privilege of living for six months in the West Bank in Ramallah, working on the first Palestinian investment conference. And for me, that was the chance to live and learn at what I think is the centre of the world, politically, spiritually, uh, historically. And so that's where... That's where I feel most at home, probably because like I, there's a great passion for dancing yeah. <laughs> and good food and little need to sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, so, you know, I know prior to being at the Department of Education and Training in Victoria, you were at the UN Office of Disaster Risk Reduction, and your work included responding to COVID-19 and climate emergencies. So we just had the World Conference and, you know, these t- very topics came up at the IBC World Conference. and especially around climate change. And, and so I guess, you know, the question that for you, and this is you know, based on your experience, what is the opportunity for communicators to play in addressing some of these issues that, that you've seen in your, you've worked in a number of different positions, but, you know, what, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, I think, look, being in communications is, is truly the best job in the world because you're both the first in the room and the last to leave it often. And, and you are often an organisation or a group of people's eyes and ears for both deflecting risk Mm -hmm. and improving reputation. You're the critical message developer and you're the best listener. (laughs) And I think that's really at the heart of a communicator's skill set. 
And I think the world, although it's, you know, shrunk in many ways, you can, you can eat a hamburger in Beirut, you can eat a hamburger in Beijing. Whilst it's shrunk in some ways, it's only grown in complexity in others. Companies are bigger than countries in terms of economic value. Everyone carries around their own domestic media platform in their pocket and new risks manifest every day and they connect up around the world. And I think the big talent of being a good communicator, no matter which sector you're working in, where you're working, is being the person in the room who asks, is that actually the problem we're trying to solve? And then making sure you have the right people on your side to solve it with you. Because I think communication at its heart is really about connecting. And good communications is about connecting so that something changes. Knowledge, attitudes, behaviours, outcomes. And our task as communication professionals is to agitate Mm -hmm. without giving up for that change. And either making people so uncomfortable or so eager for that change that they do it. And I think The great part about communications is it works across a full range of disciplines, doesn't it? You know, from public affairs, reputation management, stakeholder engagement, strategic communication, branding. But perhaps for me, more importantly, it works across all parts of the problem solving cycle. So communications, I think, isn't just a service. It's really a a strategic function that helps companies, organisations, groups of people, governments diagnose the issue, develop a response deliver the change program and then decide if it works. And that's really my communications model, diagnose, develop, deliver, decide. And I think too often, although perhaps this is starting to change, we see communications expected only as playing you know, a role at the end of that process. You get the message out rather than across that full life cycle. And I think sometimes that's because we as comms professionals have allowed our bosses and our colleagues to persist in this kind of communications is mysterious (laughs) perspective rather than communications being part of a strategic toolkit and and unwrapping that mystery rather than enhancing it. And what are some of the approaches or approach, you know, that you've seen work really well in terms of like translating, you know, these sort of complex messages to different communities and audiences? Uh, Is there a you know, an alchemy to that, that, that you can share that, you know, it's worked really well and you've seen work really well for organizations? Yeah, I have. And that's a really, I love thinking about this question. When I first started working for the UN Office for Disaster Risk Reduction, it was really clear that we needed to communicate well about something that was actually largely invisible until it was too late when you're talking about particularly disaster risk. And And in a landscape that's dominated by words that no one really understands, resilience, systemic risk, (laughs) preparedness. And because that problem with risk is you don't see it until it manifests, until it's too late, you know, until the big wave rolls in, the earthquake blows up the Richter scale, the invisible virus turns into a health crisis, turns into a global financial crisis, etc. Not only is it intangible, difficult to see, it's also a risky topic in and of itself to communicate about. If you are talking to the head of a government and urging them to invest in something that may never happen, that may seem more risky to that leader than playing the what-if game. And it's not just that leadership, Anshalon, that has that issue with risk. It's, it's we as people. I mean, who, who has ever started dieting today? We yeah. always <laughs> start the diet tomorrow. So we worked really hard at UNDRR at, at starting to show what risk looked like 
by talking about it alongside things that people already had some understanding of or were starting to understand, like climate change, extreme weather events becoming more frequent, mass migration. You know, more people are displaced through extreme weather events, climate change, than they are through conflict. And we got really good at distilling huge, chunky reports. The UN is really, really good at outputting into small digestible chunks of information that could be easily shared. You know, small videos that's told stories rather than showed figures, podcasts rather than never-ending PowerPoints. And then we got smart about putting that information in places where people naturally showed up to look for news and in places, importantly, where people showed up so that they would look knowledgeable. And that for us was LinkedIn. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so so LinkedIn was a great place, you know, to pump stories into and give someone else a chance to look more knowledgeable by, you know, clicking on a like button or sharing that story. So there was a natural ecosystem around wanting to know more, wanting to look more knowledgeable and being willing to share that knowledge that we then provided in these small, small packages. So that was really our approach. Make risk real, visible by connecting it to things that people were starting to understand and that were really part of their daily discussions and then putting those discussions into story form and places that people naturally visited. Yeah. And do you think that the messaging around climate change, and this is a very broad-based question because I think probably every country is a little bit different, but I don't know, maybe you can speak to Australia, but like, have you found it's gotten more effective in bringing consensus and cohesion across the kind of what might be a political spectrum, you know, kind of mobile? I mean, is is that something you've seen a lot of, that there's really been evolution there? Absolutely. I was playing Citizens of Humanity the other night with some friends and Greta Thunberg's name was the answer on one of the cards. <laughs> and for me, I think that that climate change information, discussion, dialogue and communication has become far more accessible at different scales. We understand personal responsibility and we also understand organisational and government responsibility. And if you look at any communications problem, if you can achieve people understanding the scope of change across different dimensions, that's an extraordinary win. And I think climate change started to get there when, again, it made the effect visible and it started connecting it to people's already strongly held values. Do you want to leave a better world for your kid? No one is going to say no. (laughs) <laughs> to that. So if you if you join up something compelling for you as a person with a problem the world is facing together, you start to translate something that was very difficult to understand into things that I can grasp and more importantly, things I can do about personally and agitate for change at a larger scale. Yeah, yeah. That's great. And, you know, I know your current position is in education and I, I'm just curious about the transition there and, you know, is it, do, you, do you feel like it's radically different than what you've been doing before. And I, I was just, I mean, it sounds like what you're currently doing is really cool. So I, I, I was just, just kind of curious about the, the transition and what that's been like. I think like many, COVID-19 really forced a rethink about where mm-hmm. I wanted to be, not necessarily about what I wanted to do. It didn't change my desire to be a communicator, but where I communicated from changed. And when it became really hard to get back into Australia, ironically, that's where I wanted to be, perhaps because I'm used to going into those places that people think are difficult. And this this also posed a challenge. And my daughter has never lived in Australia, never had the chance to unpack half of her cultural DNA and, and being half German, never had the chance to develop at least half a sense of humour. Yeah. Um, and also for me, when she became aware that the places I was working normally, you know, had an inherent level of risk and she started asking questions about, well, why would you go there if something bad can happen? Even though I wasn't worried, I worried for her. 
And so I take very much an approach that life is seasonal and, uh, you know, you, you divide your career into chunks of where you need to be at different times. And the education space is very, very rich for a communicator. I've lived in many places where getting an education, being able to access an education, particularly if you're a girl, is just not possible. So the questions about equity and excellence in education that are being grappled with here in Victoria and Australia on a daily basis are the right questions. And I'm I'm really proud to be a part of it. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges facing the education sector is is workforce pressure and the, the teaching workforce not just here, but around the world, needs to grow rapidly and and massively to keep up with demand. That's a great thing. It's complex and it's meaningful change that I get to work on. And for me, what's really interesting is I think many of us in our earlier lives spent times when we wanted to be a teacher. I certainly spent many hours as a kid playing schools nonstop. And then for many of us, that desire went away. And, And I'm currently asking that question why it's something that I think about a lot and I wonder how we resurrect that childhood passion for being a teacher or seeing teaching as a great vocation and why that deserves the best of us so lots of really complex meaningful changes in a, in a great policy space to grapple with yeah and you know just thinking back to I mean, COVID is still impacting us but I mean did you think that there was a you know we talk about equity and education that you know I know in the U.S. one of the particular challenges is that you know, some folks, uh, you know, or, or students just were kind of lost in the system because of, you know, there were a lot of distance or, you know, sort of the asynchronous learning or, you know, um, but, you know, all through Zoom or, you know, sort of mediated through technology. And, you know, as we return, you know, people are back in the classrooms. But is that, you know, something that you're coming up against, like, you know, regaining ground, you know, and, and getting that momentum back? Because, you know, certainly being over Zoom is not a, you know, it can never replace that kind of face-to-face piece. I think we could probably most of us agree, but I was just curious to kind of get your perspective on that. I mean, did it put us back, especially for those populations of people that don't have access to the resources that, that other families do or professionals? I think in the setting in which I work at the moment, it didn't put us back in many ways. I think education, particularly public education, has always throughout its history faced a series of challenges what's a good school building at the beginning? How do you even develop high school? (laughs) How do you make sure that high school leads to meaningful work? Those kind of things. So the education system is used to grappling with change. And I think that's what the system here did. And in an extraordinary way, both in terms of size and speed, there was an instant switch to remote learning and therefore an instant need for skills that perhaps hadn't been invested in in the teaching population but suddenly became necessary and I think that was a great change for democratic access actually to education particularly in what we might refer to as the as the global north so I think that that forcing of people to engage digitally that you could learn anywhere anytime and there was an element of self-determination in learning that's all been really positive for the sector I think at the same time, we're grappling with issues around connection, particularly social connection, and kids missed out of, you know, here in Victoria in a long period of time of being together with their friends in a way that they were used to. So I think certainly that is an area, and I've seen that pivoted and responded to really, really meaningfully. That's on one side. In what we might refer to as the global south, I think that was a different story, <laughs> where we had countries that were left alone in terms of or, or experienced already that digital divide or where education was underfunded or where girls weren't allowed to go to school that has had extraordinarily long-term 
impact on that sector. And that's why education should always be at the forefront of a government, both in the developed and developing world, in terms of their obligation to a better, better society. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, one of the things, because I, I live in Chicago, I mean, even, you know, here we, there are issues around the digital divide and, you know, people are just having access to a reliable internet connection, which, you know, impacted a lot of, a lot of kids in the school system. So, but yeah, I just, you know, that's, those are all really great points. Just on a more of kind of like a personal reflection, I mean, is there, some, you know, advice that you would have given if you could give yourself advice as a young professional or, or someone would say that's, just starting their career now and is looking at a, at a career in, in communications they've, they've gone through school. I mean, is there things that you would advise or, you know, the, the, uh, some things that you would impart upon them to, uh, to start their career? Yeah, sure. I'd say go back to uni and study economics and French. <laughs> no, seriously, I think for me, I, 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 you know, yeah. you never feel quite as stupid as you do as an Australian going somewhere and working with people who switch between at least three to five languages, you know, seamlessly. So, but no, I think I, I studied what people would often term as a very open-ended degree. I studied arts and music. It doesn't lead straight into career. And I'm very glad that that's the case because I learned how to learn. Yeah. And I learned how to assimilate and digest and analyze huge volumes of information and form my own opinion and then become very good at looking at different pathways of expressing that opinion and giving people different options around what they should do next. And so there's nothing I would change in that. And I actually, I'm really proud that I made my own way from thinking I was going to be an opera singer into the, the world of comms and really proud that I carved out a career that's almost solely based on doing good work and building a good reputation. I think looking back, what I tell myself is less about study and work history and more about some of those more more values or the way in which you live and work, which would be, I think, always trust your gut. See your work life in chunks of two to three years so that you can concentrate on being good at what you're doing now, not worrying about what you need to be good to do, you know, about the next thing. I'd say to myself, work out the people whose opinion you value, ignore everyone else. Don't let that noise creep in and particularly learn how to ask the right questions rather than being the one who has the right answers. And for the kind of work that I've done for the last 15, 16 years, always, always brush your teeth with bottled water or vodka. There you go. Yes. Good, those <laughs> good tips. So one of the questions that we always ask is, you know, rather than what keeps you up at night, what gets you up in the morning? So what are, what are some things that get you out of bed? <laughs> Nothing if it's Saturday. <laughs> And every other morning, a 10-month-old, uh, I don't know if you know the Australian Kelpie breed, but it's a working cattle dog. And, and that's um, what literally gets me out of bed every, every other morning apart from Saturday. But seriously, again, I think to go back to where we started, curiosity, natural curiosity about what's going to happen today, what's going to land on my head in a good way and both a bad way. And, and perhaps if I can be forgiven for sounding terribly, terribly earnest, my motto is and always has been, I'd rather light one candle than complain about the darkness. Yeah. And I think that's our obligation. That's how I was raised. If you see an issue, do your best to try and fix it. Yeah. Do you still sing? I bet my neighbours wish I didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I don't sing professionally anymore. I really, really miss that. But those skills about being able to front up into a room, give people energy and leave them feeling better are skills that have stood the test of time, no matter if I'm singing or, you know, or talking. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Stephanie, thank you so much for uh, for speaking with us. You know, I, I just your career is amazing. <laughs> so, uh, just with what you've done. Uh, so you know, it's it's been a pleasure speaking with you.
Thanks very much, Peter. Also a pleasure for me. That was a great discussion with Stephanie. Really fascinating background. And thanks so much, Stephanie, for spending a little bit of time with me to talk about, you know, what she's doing currently and, and some of what she's done in the past. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. I know I did. And there will be more to come on Pod Catalyst for this year. So thanks so much. <laughs>